And just as a, a, a pastoral note, it's uh, being up front, I always want this service to be as encouraging as possible um, to you, and don't think I did a very good job on the front end, and so I wanted to circle back around. Um, this day can be a very encouraging day um, for existing moms, but that isn't the only notes that get hit on a day like this, and so um, some folks would really like to be moms and um, can't. Some moms have lost children. Um, some daughters really don't have very good um, relationships um, with their moms um, to go. And so you come into a Mother's Day, um, and there can be a lot of um, pain and sensitivity. And some moms hear the cards, and they're just under such a weight of guilt. It's just really hard um, to, to, to receive that. And so this isn't so much Mom's Day as it is so much just a, a Women's Day and a day for um, ladies of wherever you are and whatever your background to be called to the gospel of grace and to say that there is grace for you um, in Christ. Our, our culture seems to be very surfacey when we celebrate days like this. And we have the chance as we come into worship to really be honest with where we are and to come and receive true comfort and true celebration in Christ. And so I don't think I did a very good job of that in the beginning. And there's actually a place we'll jump into that in the sermon. And so I um, wanted to apologize if I um, offended any of you ladies. And I'm so glad that you're here and um, pray for you in this church and so grateful for the godly women that God has brought um, to Christ's covenant. And, and pray even for those women that are new in Christ that the Lord would grow you up um, to invest deeply here. Um, in our congregation. So um, with that said, we're coming to Galatians 4, and we'll be in Galatians 4, um, 21 to 31. Um, this is a very difficult passage, um, but part of my commitment to you is that I'm going, for the most part, to preach straight through books of the Bible and not skip over hard sections. Um, and doing some of my commentary work and listening to different sermons through the course um, of my study during the week, I even came across um, some pastors who simply just left this verse out and just preaching through Galatians and just didn't do those 10 verses. Um, and I was like, come on, man, you're not helping me when you, when you do that. And so, um, so we're going to preach straight through. And, um, and I think in the end, this is going to be um, a really encouraging verse for you. Um, before I read it, I wanted to give you some background. Paul is talking to um, pagan Christians in Galatia um, who've just been exposed to some non-Christian Jews who are trying to kind of convert them back to a Judaism. So they're saying, listen, it's great that you've received Jesus by grace and faith and have trusted in, um, in his mercy for salvation. Now you've really got to do all this Jewish stuff um, in order for God to approve of you. So it's a very subtle form of what we call works righteousness. Yes, the grace of Jesus, but now you need to do all of this. And so Paul is going to weave into this section and he's going to draw them back to the Old Testament. He's going to bring up a bunch of themes, um, actually somewhat related to to Mother's Day and the kind of things that we think about on Mother's Day. And so he's going to give an example between um, Hagar um, and Sarah um, back from Genesis 16. He's going to talk about the biblical theme of um, barrenness and, and having children. Um, he's going to talk, go to Isaiah and he's going to quote Isaiah and Isaiah looking forward to the promised Messiah. He's going to talk about the Jerusalem that is here on earth now um, and what we would say is modern day um, Israel, modern Judaism but the Jerusalem that's above, the Jerusalem that now knows Christ as Savior. And so in a short 10, 11 verses, um, he's going to kind of hit on a bunch of different themes. Um, but this is what he's going to be nailing all along, and this is what I hope that you get. He is saying that the whole Bible teaches that there are two ways to live your life. One, you can live your life before the Lord, doing your best, um, obeying whatever laws you think the Lord would want you, and in the end, hope that that merits God's pleasure and approval on you. It's the first way to live. We would say, live by the flesh, live by law. 
Um, the second way to live life is to live by grace. Um, to look to the Lord God and hope that the finished work of Jesus instead satisfies for all of your sin and everything that God require. And so what he's asking now to the Galatians, I can ask for you, when you look at your life, when you think back on this past week, when you think back on the past year um, and the way that you've been living your life, would you characterize your life as a life of slavery or a life of freedom? A life of bondage to things you just can't break free of, of addictions of sorrow and sadness or on the other hand maybe still suffering and other things but yet joy and freedom in the grace of Jesus that's the comparison I like you to have in your head what, what, what would I say my life is if somebody knew me well would they say that my life characterizes a life of freedom and joy and celebration in Jesus or my life is just a one steady stream of I hope I'm doing enough to be someone I hope I'm doing enough to cut it with the people that I care about or the people whose approval that, um, that I want. And so that's the comparison that Paul's bringing. And we'll draw some conclusions um, by the end. Um, I'll read the text to you. This is Galatians 4, verses 21 down through 31. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One's from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, here quotes Isaiah, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman will not inherit the son with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. Since this is God's word, we should pray this morning before we consider it. Father, we love you. We're thankful for this, your word, which is a guide to us, is a comfort to us, um, reveals who you are to us. And so come to us as a congregation, come to us as Christians gather, come to those who may be considering the Christian faith. And would you teach us from your word through your Holy Spirit? We pray and we ask these things in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. So as we're heading into this, we're just going to do really two things and draw some conclusions. The first thing is we're going to go all the way back to Genesis 16, and I'm trying to remind you, if you haven't um, looked at that passage in a while, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Hagar and Sarah, um, what happened in Genesis 16 and why Paul's drawing on that. Um, secondly, we're going to think about how does that apply to what's going on actually in Galatia? Why is Paul bringing up Hagar and Sarah, um, folks who had lived so long ago, to the situation that's going on in um, Galatia, and then make some, hopefully, conclusions and um, encouragements to you um, as we apply this passage um, to our own lives. And so as we jump in, first, I want you to remember Genesis 16. If you want to go back and remember Genesis, read through Genesis 16 later, it's a great um, passage. It's right in the middle of the story of Abraham and his wife, um, Sarah. At that point, they actually had their names um, before they were renamed, and so um, Abraham was Abram, and Sarah was Sarai, and so if you go back to Genesis 16, you're like, I don't know who Joe was talking about, this isn't Abraham and Sarah, this is Abram and Sarai, same people, 
Um, Abraham is really the progenitor of faith. He is the key figure of the Old Testament, the one whom God called out of his hometown, led to the land of Canaan, and made some tremendous promises to Promises that he would make him to a nation, that he'd have kids would come from him, that kings would come from him, that he would be a blessing to the nations, and that God would provide a land for him. So really the rest of the Old Testament, and actually new, fulfilled in Christ, works itself out from those four or five promises from Abraham. Um, and in the midst of that, especially Genesis 12, 15, and 17, you have God's repetition of this promise to Abraham of what he's going to do for Abraham. Now, what you would expect after I just told you is if you go back and read the story of Abraham, that Abraham and his wife Sarah are going to be folks that have their lives together and everything goes great for them. And they're really just stalwart warriors of prayer and they just trust God and walk through their days as these pristine examples of perfectionistic Christian living. And that is absolutely not um, the case if you go back and read their stories. They really were a mess. I mean, Abraham at times would go into to lands and he had, he'd really married up, married a really attractive gal. Um, and he was worried that somebody would kill him for his wife. And so he said, sweetie, um, we're going to go in and you're going to pretend to be my sister. We're going to kind of lie about that brother-sister thing. And, you know, you might end up in some king's harem, but, you know, it's better than me getting dead. Um, which isn't a great thing. Don't try that, guys. If you're ever somewhere else, you know, <laughs> sweetie, we're going to pretend to be brother-sister because so... It's just, much less just Abraham over and over again saying, God, you made these promises to me, and they're not coming true. What are you doing? And Sarah saying, listen, God's made this promise, and then turning around and laughing somewhat mockingly at the promises of God. Like, how in the world could these things um, come about? And so we really clip into Genesis 16, and Paul is referring to this story that really isn't a very pretty picture in the life of Abraham and Sarah. And so... What they were figuring out was that God had made these promises, but that they were slow to come about. And so we're now over a decade from when Abraham has settled in Canaan. So God's given him this place. He's still a sojourner in the land of Canaan. He's given him a place to be, but he still doesn't have any children. Sarah still barren. She hasn't had any children. She desperately wants to have children, but she's really, really old now. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, for a decade now, they've been thinking over and over and over again, you know, maybe this time is going to be the month that I'm pregnant. Maybe this is going to be the time that I'm finally with child. And now a decade later, they're starting to doubt, like, how are God's promises going to work out in life? And, and what you see as you come, come to this is that a lot of times God will make a promise to you and has made promises to you, and you have to learn to wait for his timing. You look at praying about our bodies. The Lord promises one day your bodies will be whole. No more arthritic knees and no more cancer and no more GI tracts that are you know, bad, no more neural problems, none of these things. We're waiting for that promise. And we know one day Jesus is going to come back and our bodies are going to be resurrected and they're going to be made new. And then every once in a while we see examples of miraculous healing. But how many of you have just prayed for a long time? God, just make my body whole. And you've just been waiting. You know there's this promise out there, but why do some people get healed and some people have kids and some people don't? God, you promised to provide for my need, but I'm looking at my bank account and I don't see that right now. When do these promises come, tr come true in time? And we find ourselves so often waiting, and not only waiting, but in those times we find ourselves often so prone to the temptation of sin. 
sometimes when God's promises are very clear before us, but aren't being fulfilled in the timeline that we'd like, those are the moments that we are most likely to say, maybe it needs to happen another way. Those aren't moments necessarily where you say, well, I'm going to abandon this whole Christian faith thing, but I think that I could get what God's promised another way. And that's exactly what happens in Sarah's life. And so Sarah knows that God's promised her a kid. She knows that. I mean, God appeared like theophany before her, God himself, speaking to her, not just general promise, but spoke to her and says, you will have a son. And Sarah, after so much time, decides, well, maybe God, what he really wants me to do, I mean, I know that promise is that, and I know this really isn't a good scenario, but I think what I should do is take um, my, my slave girl, Hagar, and convince my husband to have a child with her, and then that child could sort of kind of be our son, and then the promises of God will come about. And I, I wonder if that doesn't sound like where you are sometimes. I, God's promised me that he's going to take care of me, and April 15th coming around. I, I think the Lord might want me to kind of fudge on my taxes a little bit, and you know, I'm sure that's what he would want. I mean, he doesn't like the government after all. And so, I mean, I, I bet this is the way that he would want this to come about. Maybe you're, you're, you're traveling and you think, oh, I'm tired at the end of the day. Nobody's watching. Maybe I'll just turn on the TV and, and look or watch something that I shouldn't watch. Because, I, 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 I mean, I, I bet somewhere that's okay. Rather than waiting for the Lord's strengthening, encouraging me against sin. Maybe you're in your marriage, and maybe you're not contemplating divorce, but you just fantasize about what it would be like for you know, your, your, your spouse to maybe die, and who, who, who you would rather marry. I mean, you, you think that doesn't happen, you who aren't married or young married. It happens all the time. Spouses find themselves fantasizing about, well, if, if something tragic happened, it would be awful, but who would, who would I marry after that? Like, and, and they start to daydream about it. You know, that's... God's plan can't be for me to be in the hardness right now and to embrace it and to know that he's going to walk me through it. I think maybe that there's this end run that I can make and kind of call down some of God's blessings a, a different way in my own strength. And you can really, really make a wreck of your life. As an honestly converted Christian, as someone who has their salvation secure, absolutely going to heaven, nevertheless, in the tension between the now and not yet, the promises being held out, and the suffering now of trying to figure out, I'm just going to take some control over my life, and I'm going to do some kind of shady things, because I think kind of in the end, God would want me to do that. And you see that happening here in Sarah's life in Genesis 16. You see, when... When we try to earn the gifts of God, we try to turn his promises into payments. We try to turn the gifts of God into something we earn. We turn his promises into payments. You see, Sarah wasn't receiving a promise. She was receiving wages. She had thought hard, probably a difficult decision, I can imagine. And nevertheless, here comes son, Ishmael. But it wasn't, it wasn't a gift. It wasn't grace. 
It was something that she was able to bring about with her own hands. She was able to attempt to secure the future that she really wanted rather than walking in the ways of the Lord. And that always happens. If you try to, even if we talk about emotional happiness, let's just say you're just so tired of being sad. You want to finally be happy. And so you're going to go and do whatever you can um, to be happy. I run into folks like this all the time, going through suffering, going through um, struggle. And they say things like, I'm just not sure I'm a Christian anymore. I'm, I'm debating giving up the faith. They really aren't. They're just saying, I'm in a place where I would really do anything to feel happy right now. And so I might conveniently forget about God so I can do what I want just to experience some emotional happiness right now. We end up making wrecks of our lives when that happens. And so you know, Sarah goes to Abraham and says, hey, I have this great idea. You're going to have a kid with Hagar. Abraham goes through with it. Hagar has a kid, Ishmael. And then as is always the case, Sarah turns around and says, Abraham, what did you do? You know, on the back end, all of a sudden, we regret that we did that, and we find all this wreckage in our life and start blaming other people. And I'm sure Abraham's like, you told me to do it. And then Sarah starts to be mean to Hagar, and Hagar ends up wandering out because this, this woman that she thought was going to bring the blessing of God through the Son of God that God promised now is obnoxious to her. She can't stand to see her, and so sends her out into the wilderness. But do you... Do you see the way that Paul talks about her? Do you see what God, what Paul says God thinks about Sarah? I mean, that story. I mean, Paul could bring it up and he could say some of the things I could. Colossal failure. I mean, he allows her husband to go into adultery to get a child that she later chases out all in rebellion to the Lord. But Paul goes into that passage and says, she is the mother of the faithful the mother of the free. She is the Jerusalem above. He equates her to the church in heaven. We sometimes talk about the church as our mother. And he equates Sarah to that. And he says, do you want to know about Sarah's story? Sarah's story is a story of God's gracious blessing. And she later had the kid, Isaac, that God had promised, miraculously, not through her own doing. And you can imagine God going and saying, listen, a lot of women in the world, I'm going to choose a different one. You really messed this up. Why couldn't you just have faith and do it the way that I told you to do it? I'm going to go find another woman to bear Israel and the nation that I've promised. And instead, he just decides to be gracious to her and just bless her and then give her that story. The woman of faith, the woman of grace, the woman of blessing. And I wonder, moms, I wonder, ladies, if that isn't something that you need to hear this morning. I wonder if the title motherhood is crushing to you, or like I said before, I wonder if you just didn't have a great relationship with your mom, and so it's painful. I, I wonder when, if you look at your kids, if instead of being confronted by the joy often, you're just confronted with um, your own mistakes and failures. I wonder if you would just long to be a mom, and the Lord just hasn't given you a child yet, like Sarah. And I, I wonder if in the midst of all of those difficulties, you aren't starting to tell yourself that that's your story. That that's what defines you. That who you are as a woman 
what your children are lack thereof, or your mistakes or your failures, your successes, is who you are. Do you see how the Lord deals with his daughters? He looks at them and says, beloved, daughter of the king, recipient of grace, your worst moments, your hardest failures, your most difficult pain, what you've done and what's been done to you cannot define you or your story. If you've been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus, your story is now his story and God is your father, the one who loves you and gives you a story, his story of blessing and of favor and of mercy. And I promise you, ladies and men, for the rest of your life, you're going to have moments where you're going to try and take the wheel. You're going to try and say, God's blessings, I can get these on my own by myself. I know he's made promises, but he's slow to bring them about. I can do this, and I think somehow he would want me to. You will keep doing that, and God will continue, Christian, to bless you with abounding grace, to lead you to repentance, and to show you that he loves you. Because the story of not just the Old Testament, the story of the New Testament is a story of a people who've been loved by God's grace really despite themselves and all of their failures. And so you see Paul here trying to convince a bunch of people to live by grace and he tells that story of Sarah. And he says, this is the way we look at this story. Look what happened when Sarah tried to live by works. Did it go well for her? She made a wreck of her life. And look what God did in Sarah's life instead. He decided to bless her by grace. Not because she'd done good things. Not because she'd been faithful. She wasn't. Not because she'd been nice to Hagar. She wasn't. He just decided to bless her. To be merciful to her. To lavish her with undeserved love. And so he says to these Galatians, what do you want to do? How do you want to live? How do you want to read the Old Testament? You've had these folks come into you and said, listen, if you really want God's blessing, if you really want God's reward, then what you need to do is do all of these Jewish things. You might come in and say, if you really want to earn God's blessing and you really want to earn God's, God's reward, then you need to get out there and start serving in soup kitchens. If you really want God's reward, you need to start giving all your money. If you really want God's reward, you need to kind of clean up your life and take care finally of that sin stuff that is going on in your life. If you really want, you need to take the reins and take control and earn what God's promised. If you try and earn what God's promised, it turns promise into payment and hollows you out as a person. And so Paul's saying, what would it look like for you instead to go to God and to say, you are merciful and gracious? I have failed, will fail, I have sinned, I will sin, and you have been the one who has continued to bless me. And so I'm coming to you, and I'm asking you for help and blessing and mercy and grace undeservedly, because I think that's who you are. I'm coming to you and asking for you to change me through your love, not by holding some carrot out in front and telling me to get my act together. I'm coming to you, God, based on mercy and grace because of who you are, not who I think I can be. And I'm pleading for you to show up in my life because that's what I believe the Bible teaches from front to back. You see what Paul did? He didn't get less exegetical. He didn't get Bible light. 
He didn't remove theology. He didn't say, okay, well, if we're really going to talk about the grace and love of God, well, we've got to kind of turn our minds off and we're going to kind of get broad and general and just speak of God as generally loving and gracious. He didn't do that. He went to the Bible and says, we're going to drill down. These folks are coming in and saying, this is what the Bible teaches. Well, let's really open up the Bible and see what the Bible teaches. Let's go back to Genesis 16 and see what happened in Genesis 16. Let's go to Isaiah 54. What he did was Sarah, the, the name Sarah is only mentioned once outside of Genesis. You know what book it's mentioned in? It's mentioned in Isaiah. It's mentioned in Isaiah 52. It's mentioned when Isaiah is thinking about this term of barrenness and fruitfulness. And he's looking back and he's saying, so often we look at our lives and it looks barren, not bearing anything, and that it never will. We look at what God's doing in our life and it looks like he is silent and still and absent. And Isaiah says that is not the story of our Bible or our God. When it looks that way, there's a good bet God's about to do something big. So wait through the barrenness, wait through the hardness, wait through the difficulty, look to that God and say, I know you will act when you will. My favorite lines in um, the Lord of the Rings trilogy is when Gandalf pulls up right before Bilbo's birthday party and Frodo springs out and says, Gandalf, you're late. And Gandalf says, a, a wizard is neither late nor early. He always arrives when he intends to. And Tolkien drawing on ideas about God is the same thing. The Lord is neither late nor early. He always does what he wants in his perfect timing. And so Isaiah mentions Sarah in 52. Do you know what Isaiah 53 is about? Isaiah 53 is about God's suffering servant. The one who will come and will suffer on behalf of his people. And by his stripes they will be healed. He will bear their iniquity. And in bearing their iniquity, he will bring them back to God. In Isaiah 53, it is the only place in all of the Bible where the terms that describe animal sacrifice are applied to a person. To God's suffering servant who would die like the bulls and the goats and the doves died in the temple. And then do you know what happens in Isaiah 54? He says this. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Paul picks up in Isaiah 54, quotes it in Galatians 4 about God's good grace. If you want to know the grace of God, drill deep in the Bible. Don't let anyone ever tell you. What the Bible really teaches is that we should be good and obey and earn God's pleasure. And it's just these crazy, wild Christians who want to take the Bible and say it, it teaches something else. That they're not being specific. They're not drilling down enough. If you want to see God's grace, run to his word. See stories of men and women who made wrecks of their lives and God still blessed them and made them fruitful. And even people who were wrecks and over time, God actually changed by loving them. So they became more gracious people and more loving people. Never perfect, but nonetheless transformed by grace and not by the law. If we want to see God's grace, we don't need to abandon the Bible. We need to drill deep into the Bible because that's exactly what the Apostle Paul did in this passage. Going against those people who had come, he said, listen, if you want to get into Bible study, let's do Bible study. 
because he knew the entirety of the Bible taught that Christ would come and that in space and time he would die for his people after living the life that they should have lived. And in that moment, he would unite his people to him. And in that union, two things would change, their identity and their story. Instead of having the identity of sinners under the wrath of God, they would have the identity of sons and daughters of God, blessed and privileged with salvation and redemption, having all of their sins redeemed. Now having that identity is the thing that defines them, not their jobs or their spouse or their children or what they've done or what they haven't done or what's been done by them or what's been um, done to them, but their identity confirmed by Christ and that their story is now Jesus's story. And so if you are a Christian, God is living out of you a life of grace. He actually is, even though it doesn't feel like that all the time. You're united to this Jesus. Your story is a story of church. Your story is the story of this word. Your story is the story of the Holy Spirit. And even in this sermon, I wonder if God's not confronting you with grace and his gospel because you've started to deviate. You are in the path of righteousness and grace. You've received Christ as your savior, but you've started to believe the Galatian heresy. I'm going to take things by my own hands. I'm going to chart my own path. Instead of waiting on the Lord and looking for him, I'm going to do it myself. And so call down and earn the blessings of God. So what do we do with a passage like this? A few notes of conclusion. Ask yourself, when you look at your life, is your story a story of slavery or freedom? When you look at the things that control you, are you controlled by money and your lusts are you controlled by guilt in the past are you controlled by fear in the future or are you controlled by the love of god you just can't escape the fact that the lord jesus has loved you and being controlled by the love of christ you've been freed there's freedom in one place and it's in the lord jesus and the bible charts it from front to back and so even if you've come this morning and you never placed your faith in christ this passage commends it to you and describes the other, only other way to live life. But sometimes even Christians believing in Christ, truly saved, like Sarah, find themselves doing things that they're not proud of. And so if that's you, let me encourage you to repentance. Repentance isn't a nasty word. Repentance is where Christians love to be. Because we know that we've failed. We know that we've sinned. And we know when we repent, we can see more of God's grace. You realize if there was no sin, if there's no repentance, then there's also no grace. You can't know God's grace without repenting. You cannot. There can be no forgiveness without conflict. You cannot forgive someone or be forgiven unless there was conflict. And let me take a step further. I know for many of you what repentance means is looking back over my week and seeing all of the wrong things that I've done and then saying sorry for them, and it includes that. But I wonder... Have you ever repented for believing that God is less than he is? Have you ever gone to God and not just, I'm so sorry for what I've said and not said what I've done and not done, but Lord God, this whole week I made you out to be mean and wrathful. This whole week I made you out to be someone who is afar off and semi-loving, arms crossed, shaking his finger at me. I have, I have made you out to be that God. And nevertheless, you actually been close to me, loving me and blessing me. I repent for my unbelief. I repent for not believing you're as loving as you are. 
I repent for not believing that you're as gracious as you are. I repent for not believing that you are in control of my life like you are. I repent for my bad views of you. For so many of you, it would be so much better if you'd repent of your bad views of God than just the things that you've done wrong. Then what does it mean for you to step into and live a life of grace? To wake up each morning and to believe that this is the story, this is the stream that I'm in. I'm going to make mistakes, I have made mistakes, and God has loved me. And so when I see my mistakes and I see my failures, I don't doubt God's love. I actually look to the whole Bible from front to back and find myself in good company. A bunch of people that kept messing up and getting God's grace. When I look and I want the promises of God to come true yesterday, and I'm frustrated with God because I believe he wants to do something in my life, but he's holding out on me, can I look to the Bible and see the fact that God still loves me in that and that he is still blessing and carrying me through my times of waiting? Absolutely. So being as practical as I can in closing, what does it mean about holding a grudge? Maybe you're someone who is prone to Hold a grudge, um, which, by the way, means you're human. Somebody's done something to you that hurt you, and they shouldn't have done it. And what you are holding out for is either for them into contrition and just demolished over what they've done to come and say they're sorry, or for them to get theirs. So you hold a grudge. What does it look like for you instead being controlled by that? Because if you're holding a grudge, then you're controlled by it. That person has controlled you. Not only have they done something bad to you, they have continued to enslave you after that. They have been able to make themselves and what they've done to you the thing that you always think about. And as much as you want to say, I'm going to turn that off and not think about what they've done, you keep finding it come up again and again and again. What does it look like for you to say, I've done worse before the Lord? the Lord would be fair and just and ask me to grovel or to pour out judgment on me, then where would I be now? He has been merciful to me and if he can be merciful to me then I can forgive that person. doesn't mean that all of a sudden it doesn't matter, doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, doesn't mean you have to be their best buddy anymore, but it means that you can forgive them and you can be released from having to think about them all the time and you can entrust them to the Lord so that either his just judgment will fall on them or his mercy will fall on them in Jesus, but you have given it up to him and you've stepped into a life of freedom and forgiveness rather than life of enslavement and waiting for them to get theirs or to clearly articulate the pain that they've caused you. Where do you want to live? What about when it comes to overcommitment? We live in a generation, typically, I don't know many lazy people. Um, I think I maybe know a few lazy people, but I don't know a lot of lazy people. Most of the people that I know don't, don't really struggle with laziness. Most of the people that I know struggle with overcommitment and exhaustion. Um, they've actually made exhaustion like the number one status symbol that they could give. I've really tried hard when somebody asks me how I'm doing not to say exhausted and be proud of it. And so, much, so, much, so many of us do. If that's where you are, you are in bondage and slavery to your work and what your work says about you. You have to be involved in 30 things and your job has to be here by then and your house has to be this way and your family has to be this way and so you have to do it all yesterday or you're not someone worth anything and you're in bondage. So 
What does it look like to step into the stream of grace and say, God's given me 24 hours like everybody else, and he expects me to sleep? What does it look like for me to find my identity in this Christ and to know that work can't define me? Being a mom or a dad can't define me. What I've done can't define me. What I haven't done can't define me because my identity is secure in Jesus. And so now I can walk into my day and actually serve people. I can work at my job as hard as I can, not because I feel like all of a sudden if I don't, I'm going to quit and what that would say about me or I'm not going to get the next promotion, but because Lord Jesus has given me some things to do and I want to do them to his glory. What freedom there is in that. What does it look like to work diligently for your families, to be a good steward of your belongings, to love your kids, not because you're afraid if something bad happens, what it'll say about you, but because Jesus has just freed you up to love them. What stream do you want to live in? One way is bondage and law and works. The other is the way of grace and forgiveness and people like Sarah and Abraham who have looked to the Lord Jesus for mercy and grace and gift rather than payment and merit. There are two ways to live. And Paul points it out here. And you will struggle, our church will struggle for the rest of our days until Jesus comes back. It's not like we're going to nail this one down today and then from thenceforth we are just free grace livers. This is part of the reason why like you pay me, like you realize that, right? Like I work hard during the week to study the grace of the gospel so every Sunday we can again tie ourselves to the mast of God's grace because we know what's going to come. Like the reason we worship every Sunday in part is because we can't go any longer without hearing about grace because we are so prone to forget it. We have to return to this book and we have to do Isaiah 52 and 53 and 54 and Genesis 16 through Galatians and what that meant here and there so we can get our hands around the grace of the gospel of the Lord Jesus because we are so prone to forget it. And the Lord God is faithful. That is what the church is. That is what his word is. That is what the Holy Spirit does. And so I commend this morning God's grace to you from a difficult passage. We turn. We want to be the, the sons and daughters of Sarah, the sons and daughters of God, those who've received much more grace than we ever deserved and can ever pay back. And that's the point. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We're thankful for the grace that's been displayed in this passage, the grace that's been displayed in all of your word, the grace that's displayed in your son, Jesus. 